Hello, Kay here. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Language of My Soul podcast. The question last episode was, if you had a million dollars and couldn't spend it on yourself, how would you spend it and why? The first thing I would do is pay off my parents' existing debt. Given the average cost of raising a child is 200k USD, this would make things even. That is to say, I do care about familial piety, to a certain extent anyway. I'm also Asian, so this checks out. However, I wouldn't buy them a new house, car, or anything of the like. At first, it would be, wow, is that for me? But hidden underneath the initial excitement is additional taxes, fees, and maintenance costs. When Oprah gave her audience a free car, it pushed up the tax bracket for some of them, resulting in a huge tax bill. Always watch out for the second and third order effects, aka side effects. Another portion of this money would be used to fund education suitable for the modern age, or building an organisation that can achieve that. That is, not to use current schooling techniques that were modelled off 19th century railway factories and instead focus on practical, hands-on learning. After learning how the current schooling system enforces conformity, following orders, and saps creativity from students, I've come to resent it. It's already far too late for me. The damage has been done and the rest of my life will be undoing the harmful effects. But other children don't need to suffer the same fate. They could reach their true potential without decades of side effects. Perhaps another option would be to donate to the Card Academy. The unfortunate thing is how they're fully online. There's already tons of free online courses. However, self-taught people don't really need help in the first place. Like Malcolm from Malcolm in the Middle. No matter what happens to him, he'll be fine. I wasn't the self-taught person. With my constant procrastination, it only took a few hours before I was bored and moved on. In-person learning forces people like me to do the hard work and learn. The final portion of the money would be used to fund arts. Not garbage-tier postmodern art with their blank canvases and urinalcy art, but rather real art. To fund art that invokes a sense of awe, wonder and astonishment when viewing it. Gemini is the first artist that invoked these feelings for me. A simple image with a girl in a coffee shop looking at the rain-covered window was truly beautiful. Beauty will save the world. Whether that quote is true or not is unknown, but if beauty can save me, that's enough of a reason to fund it. This question helps understand what somebody's true interests and motivations are. We're all self-centered, and there's nothing wrong with that, as long as it's not taken too far. Being the cranky, greedy old man who did nothing but think about himself with no friends is not an ideal life. Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life is a prime example of a purely selfish life. In addition, life is hard. To live life alone is similar to self-reliance that Ralph Emerson advocated for, but this level of mental fortitude is rare. Look at religions, communities, and even Alcoholics Anonymous. They all ask us to help somebody else. The final step of Alcoholics Anonymous asks you to help somebody else overcome their addiction. In Western societies, religion and community have been dying for decades. Bowling Alone is a book about America's retreat from communities, public activities, and meeting spaces, with the prime example being empty bowling leagues. Now, I'm not religious or have any community, thus it's up to me to meet others and help others despite my personal inclination to be utterly selfish and self-absorbed. Recently, I read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dan Carnegie, and I'm struck by how easy it is to manipulate others. There isn't any voodoo magic. 
The premise is to give people heartfelt, positive appreciation, a stellar reputation to live up to, and to not trash talk others. The book's title makes it seem pretty sinister, like you have to stalk them for weeks before ensnaring your prey. But it's no different from praising dogs. Carnegie even wondered why we didn't reward people like dogs, giving them positive reinforcement whenever positive behaviour occurs. Instead, we give people increasing levels of punishment and wonder why they resist. He took the case of construction workers not wearing hard hats. When the supervisor came over and demanded they wear hard hats, they did. But as soon as he was out of sight, so were their hard hats. A similar story occurred in my school. When the teacher told students, put on your hats, they did. At least until the teacher was gone. Instead of yelling commands and threatening punishment, asking those construction workers if the hats were too uncomfortable and emphasising it existed for their own safety resulted in a far higher, longer term compliance. To properly manipulate others, the key is to understand it isn't about you. In Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss was negotiating with a Christian man and racked his brains for a Christian word for overseeing. It wasn't about Voss. It was about presenting himself as similar to the other person as possible. Everyone wants to interact with like-minded people. Somebody's friends tells a lot about what type of person they are. Think about the entire job interview process. It's about finding someone who fits the culture, which is just a subset of the founder's personality. SpaceX is the obvious example. Elon Musk works long and hard hours, and so does the rest of the company. The most interesting thing about these findings is how you don't need the higher salary to keep the top talent. That isn't an invitation to pay minimum wage, but truly top talent can always find a higher salary elsewhere. A top engineer at SpaceX was paid 100k, then Blue Origin came in and doubled that. If another company came in and doubled everyone's salary, who wouldn't leave? But if you praise and make every employee feel welcomed and valuable, maybe they won't leave, or at least stay a bit longer. A similar story is playing out in my current life. My employer can't afford what I'm worth. However, I do have a lot of freedom and feel my boss and I were on similar wavelengths, which is why I haven't left yet. With my skills and experience in computer science, I could easily find a new workplace and double my current salary, but I'm holding back for now. If you must give negative feedback, never ever make it about the person themselves. Always make it about an action or behaviour, things that can be changed. When someone feels you're attacking their identity, then forget any behavioural change, they'll double down and defend themselves to the death. This isn't advice I pulled out of my own ass. Napoleon Hill mentioned this. Insulting another person will simply make enemies. Why antagonise another person just to satisfy your own ego? These enemies will remember your slight and get back to you, whether it's tomorrow or in 10 years. Hill brought up Abraham Lincoln as an example, who used to write insulting letters and publish them anonymously in newspapers. A recipient of those insults was furious, and after he discovered the author, Lincoln, he demanded a duel. Just before the duel started, seeing Lincoln fearsomely swing a long blade, he no longer felt up to the duel. Lincoln, seeing this, gave him an easy way out. He would offer an apology. Giving someone a graceful way out is extremely important. Despite the odds, if Lincoln insulted that man again, then the duel would have not ended so peacefully. After this incident, Lincoln ceased writing insulting letters entirely. Stephen Crowder, the change my mind guy, sometimes uses his crowd against the person he's speaking to, mocking him, insulting his ideas and who he is. Sure, Crowder got cheers from the audience, but at what cost? 
having them double down on their current position, no matter the facts, and making new enemies? Egged on by the audience, Crowder continuously jeered the person he was conversing with and leaving them no position to back down without losing face. Leaving your enemies an escape route is a classic Sun Tzu stratagem. In ancient China, the warlord Cao Cao boldly proclaimed he would slaughter all the city's inhabitants shortly before commencing the siege. Surely enough, every inhabitant of that city fought to their death. And despite months of sieging, Cao Cao still did not capture that city. It was only after he revoked his massacre intention did the city surrender. The ultimate art of war is to win without fighting, Sun Tzu. Despite thousands of years passing, this principle applies to day-to-day -day life as well. My little brother has an extremely poor understanding of basic common sense. Not understanding basic common sense makes life needlessly difficult, so I wanted to correct that. But to yell and scream at a boy is a surefire recipe for disaster. He might appear to change his behaviour at the moment, but he'll soon revert as soon as I'm gone. To yell and scream also consumes a lot of energy. I knew a couple that would scream at their child. That was their parenting style. And by gods, my ears hurt after a single event with them. Instead, playfully teasing is a more energy effective strategy. When my brother was 11, he tried to cut a watermelon and my mother told him, stop, it's too dangerous. Since a similar story occurred when I was younger, and I continued to cut the watermelon and then injured myself, I taught him how to properly cut it. A few years passed and I find him trying to cut a watermelon with the knife in a precarious position where it will head straight down into his belly if it slips. A simple tease. Are you trying to cut the watermelon or yourself? Got him to re-evaluate how he's positioning the knife and move it to a safer position. No screaming, no shouting, nor being negative about his skills. A playful tease got him to change the situation himself. The battle between those who understand and use psychology to their absolute advantage and those who aren't in the know rages on. Some people shame the knowledgeable as manipulative, Machiavellian, or whatever new term the generation conjures up. How would you define power? Is it your friend or mortal enemy? To me, power is to shape the world to what I desire. By listening to this podcast, you have already exercised your power. With money, people have mined, manufactured, and shipped whatever technology you're using right now. Hundreds upon hundreds of people spent countless hours to shape the world to your desire, the desire to own a piece of technology. I see only two choices. Either you become armed with psychology and shape the world to your will, or be a pawn in someone else's chess game. A golden example of salesman. I once asked my mother to buy a sandwich press, but she came home with this huge grill. The salesman manipulated her into buying something significantly more expensive than a sandwich press, and it was completely unnecessary. It couldn't even toast a sandwich, and it still collects dust to this day. With great knowledge comes great responsibility. Scamming an old granny of all her life savings can have dire consequences. However, it can also be used to help others, even if they didn't necessarily want help. There's this disability support worker who worked with a man that completely shut himself out of the world for years. Without friends or any social interactions, he is completely selfish, antisocial, and a childish person. The support worker took him to judo once, and next time he said he didn't want to go. The shadow wanted some friends. That was his goal. The support worker walks into his room, sits down by the Xbox and pretends to play, saying out loud, this game would be really fun to play with friends. Oh wait. The support worker then walked up to the shadow and asked, are you strong? The shadow meekly responded with, no. The support worker immediately follows up with, 
but I know you can be. He gave a clear image of what fulfilling his goals looked like, and a stellar reputation to live up to. After that, he mentioned how if the Shadon continues to go to judo, he'll get to know some people, and one day, some of those could be his friends playing Xbox with him. In a few sentences, the support worker gave Sharon a clear image of what his future could be if he continues to go to judo with him. The Sharon went to judo that day. Now this is, without a doubt, masterful manipulation. To top it off, it was executed on the spot, there was no pre-analysis or planned lines. Now the Sharon probably didn't want any help, no judo, no meetings with the support worker. He probably wanted nothing more than to play games and continue watching anime. The disability scheme mandated he receive a support worker. If he didn't comply, then his government support would be shut off. The support worker was contractually obliged to help him and manipulated him to receive his help. Now is that good or bad? That's up to you to decide. My final point would be about the most powerful influencing technique in the universe, the incentive-decentive system. This will spur behaviour towards the incentive or dissentive, no matter the consequences. This knowledge is echoed in the quote, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to become a good measure. Never underestimates people's creativity at gaming the system. A university had a course that banded students' grades upwards and somebody figured out if nobody goes to the exam, then everybody would get full marks. They spread this message around and ensured everybody boycotted the exam, with several students staying outside to guard the exam hall, making sure nobody double-crossed them. I also wondered the same thing with ATAR, the Australian score that determines what university and courses you are eligible for. Higher scores gives better opportunities. When I was in year 12, I took classes that interested me, but I wasn't necessarily good at them, like a harder math or English class. But what if I took the easy classes? Since ATAR is roughly based on your grades, the higher the grades, the better the score. I believe there's some banding where more difficult subjects have higher weights, but getting an A in an easier class is better than getting a C in a hard class. Furthermore, ATAR scores are mostly based on your final year of schooling. If I were to repeat life, I'd focus on just passing classes until year 12, instead spending that time doing things I enjoy. Then, in year 12, take easier courses to ensure a higher grade, thus a higher ATAR. It's increasingly common for Australian universities to not list prerequisite classes like physics or chemistry. Unis get funding from the government based on the number of students enrolled. So more students means more money. Whether they can pass the coursework or not ain't their problem. Call centres are incentivised to solve tickets as fast as possible. Nowhere are they incentivised to actually help the customer. In fact, they're decentivised to really help the customer, especially if there's a major problem. Instead of helping, just escalating them to a higher level makes more sense for the workers. For some jobs, an hourly wage incentivizes one to work slower. When I was setting up computers for a convention, the faster I worked, the less money I would earn that day. It would have been more logical for me to work just above average, so that I don't get fired and make as much money as possible. So how are you getting incentivized or decentivized? Do you have any key performance indicators that result in dodgy behavior? Are there any situations you know where individuals optimizing for themselves has a significant cost overall. Perhaps you see this in other people's behaviour. Never underestimate what one can do to justify their paycheck. In the software development industry, a project manager seems busy, constantly in meetings, looks more proficient at their work. 
That is to say, they can be promoted easier and more often by appearing busy. Busy work. These constant meetings come at a detriment of actually doing anything. No new features will ever come if half the work is filled with Zoom calls. The question this week is more of an interview question that I found interesting. You're the CEO of a small company that worked on a system, but you found out there's a major flaw and it would take two weeks to fix it. The company you're demonstrating to said they wanted a prototype in three days. What would you do? So with that concluding thought, thanks all for listening. If you wanted to send through your answer to my weekly questions or have your own big questions, there's a voice clip link in the description. Or send it to thelanguageofmysoul at protonmail.com.